0: Welcome to The Locker Room, where we break down sermon stories in scripture for the race of our faith. If this podcast has been serving you, hit follow and the notification bell, share it with your friends, family, and we also have an Instagram, Locker Room, Crossroads. So uh,
1: Yeah, I'm going to put a plug in for the Instagram because... Um, Haley runs that she does such an amazing job and she definitely highlights the episodes and kind of gives you a heads up of what's coming out and who the people are but in addition there's a lot of great announcements on there to just to find out what's happening at Crossroads like when we have the prayer and worship night she posts that so it's not just about the podcast so if you go to Crossroads you could join that and you'd be totally up to speed on other things that are happening as well at Crossroads she does such a good job
0: amen to that yeah, and Daryl did a great job this, uh, this weekend. We unfortunately couldn't make it work with his schedule. He's a busy man doing ministry down um, in Kalamazoo. Yeah, Kalamazoo uh, but today. Just grateful for teammates in the gospel around West Michigan. And maybe you tell us just a little bit about how you got to know Daryl, Rod. Yeah, so I, I was invited to
2: this group of men. Uh, black and white, pastors and businessmen. And this is about two and a half years ago. And over the course of two and a half years ago, these men have become like brothers to me. Uh, We love each other deeply. We trust each other. And we're doing life together at a deep level, and it was through this that I got to know Daryl. And he is just an incredible guy, loves the Lord. God's put him in some very strategic positions spaces and places in our city where he, as a pastor, uh, could, you know, be a person of impact and from the church to the campus. And now he's doing prison ministry. So he's a guy that just loves the Lord. He loves the Bible. I think he had the text memorized. It seemed like it when he was, you know, up there preaching. It was just so in his heart and he loves the church. So
1: we also had a guest, kind of guest, worship leader on Sunday, which is really great. She did a great job. Um, yeah, her Mandy. Name, yeah, Mandy Miller. She did an awesome job. Her husband um, also has played guitar a couple times. So that wasn't his first time up, but it was her first time joining him. And that was just a gift to us.
2: Yeah, for sure. I if, know that, yeah. If but, some
1: of you guys are like old-time Crossroads people, you might remember the Boltman family. Sarah Boltman, a missionary. Sharla Boltman used to lead worship at Crossroads, and Mandy is her sister. So, Mandy is a long term um, friend of Crossroads, family of Crossroads, very talented. So, we were just blessed to have her. It was a gift.
2: Yeah, for sure. Her parents, a big part of our church for many years. I think right now, one of the things, you know, our church right now is growing, and people have these fears that we're becoming a mega church. And Becoming that has never been a goal of Crossroads. It's not something we're striving for, and yet at the same time, it is what it is. And I think sometimes then a certain kind of style that comes out of the megachurch then puts fears in our people that maybe we're going the mega church route, which is actually something that we fight every day. You know, we're about simple, restful, real. We're about a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. Um, everybody's a pastor and a missionary. We want to push the kingdom down and out. And we want to, on Sunday mornings, not have a stage audience with the priests on the stage and everybody else is just, you know, a spectator.
1: Yeah, like the professional Christians on the stage and <laughs> everybody else. Yeah, so I that. think
2: there, there, there might have been some of that flavor on Sunday and, and then people get a little, and I'm glad people get that way because, yeah, yeah, we're, we they feel have the same way. Exactly.
0: Um, but. but but at the same time it also is leaning into one of our values which is to be a kingdom of priests and so when we have priests from outside of our community we're saying hey we're part of a, a much larger a global church and uh, one of the things you even talked about today Rod was that we're leaning into this revelation 5 motif when it comes to worship like amen yeah and that's one of the things that we want to fight like
2: we don't want to take ourselves so seriously and everything has to be just the way that we think it should be at Crossroads and this is what crossroads is and we're extra special and all of that. No, we're just an itty bitty bitty part of God's kingdom and we want to play our part and at the same time we value the very big thing that we're a part of outside of Crossroads, that there's one church and Mm -hmm. it's beautiful, it's diverse and yeah, so and I literally I was watching the service from afar and as I was watching, I just welled up with tears. Mm. I, I I mean, they were streaming down my, my, my cheeks. Um, I was just thinking, <laughs> I can't believe I get to be a part of a church like this. Amen. Uh, that worships God. And then Daryl getting up there and just a man that loves the Lord and loves the people of God and just feeding us his word. Uh, yeah, I just felt honored and privileged to be a part of Crossroads from afar in California, watching it with my parents.
1: <laughs> it was a great weekend, that's for sure. Great service. I was blessed, so.
0: Yeah. And uh, this kingdom of priests motif uh, actually really fits with the text that we're in this Sunday, Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through the end of the chapter in verse 33, because we see Abram priesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, but what does that... What does that even mean, and how do we know that Abraham here is priesting?
1: Well, because one of Daryl's points, his second point, I think, was God allows Abraham to, or, yeah, Abraham. I almost went back to Abram. I'm like, are we pre-name change? Yeah, God allows Abraham to negotiate is what Daryl mentioned, which was awesome, that God actually allows Abraham to go toe-to-toe. But that's kind of like priesting.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, here you have the Lord and two angels accompanying him and yet they look like they're three men. And they're having this conversation with Abram right next to him. The Lord's speaking to the other two angels. Should I not tell Abram what I'm about
0: to do? Knowing that Abraham can obviously hear this. I know. How strange is that? He's just having this conversation in front of Abram about Abram. Yeah, and it's purposeful. (laughs) He's like,
1: what do you think, guys? Should we let him in?
0: it's, It's really to invite Abraham
2: in. It's to give Abraham the opportunity to just like move into because then what they're talking about is God's saying to these two angels, the cry, the cry is too much. In fact, it's a Hebrew word, uh, zak- zakah, and zakah, which sounds actually like, like zedekah, like zedekah. In fact, right. it's, yeah. and the prophets play on these two things because they sound alike and hmm. yet they're opposite. Uh, Well, what is tzedakah? Tzedakah tzedakah is righteousness. Mm -hmm. It's radical generosity. It's when we disadvantage ourselves to bring advantage to another person. That's tzedakah. Um, Zakah is the cries of the oppressed, the screams, the wails from their hurt of being oppressed.
1: So it's the exact opposite. It's when you... Disadvantage someone else or to bring remember. advantage to yourself. Yes, that produces zakah, the cries of that one who's been oppressed. So the exact opposite.
2: Correct. And God uses this word too, even when the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. He says, "I heard your cries; those, um, the zakah, the the screams of, of the oppressed. They came. It came to my ears, and God hears those screams. It's throughout the Bible um, that the cries of the oppressed, they just come right to his ears and go directly to his heart. And so this is the conversation that he's having right in front of Abram with these two other angels, like, these screams are too much. We need to come down and bring justice to this situation. And so he wants Abram to hear this, because I think he wants Abram now to step into it, which Abraham does. He yeah. steps into it boldly. And I don't know if you want me to speak to that.
0: Well, I do just want to point one thing out, though. This is not the first time the reader is finding out about the wickedness of Sodom. So for six chapters, we've been prepared for this moment. In chapter 13 and verse 13, uh, it says, But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. And so, and by the time we get to 18, as a reader, even if Abraham doesn't know this yet, which I don't know, do you think he does, I think he'd have to, if he lived in that region, understand what's going on in Sodom, right? Right? But we've been we've been getting these hints that, uh, of just how wicked Sodom really is.
2: Yeah, strong hints, which is why Abram. Now Abraham does not do life there. But he cares about it. But it's like he's not going to get sucked into it the way Lot. Lot, his heart's drawn to
0: it. So how should that inform us as Christians in the way that we also interact with the world?
2: I mean, Jesus says we are to be in the world but not of the world. And I think that there's times when we have to respect the world and the potency of the world. And just like, There's a time when you can step into a stream and cross it, but there's another time when the stream is not a stream. It's it's not even a river. It's a it's a stage four whitewater (laughs) river. Like you don't just like, hey, let's go cross that today. Let's go step into that and wade in that. Um, And I think you know, biblically, even though we're to be in the river or in the world, we also have to respect the world and when the world's force becomes too much, there is a time to be like Abraham and to retreat from it.
0: Mm.
1: Amen. Speaking of the rivers, I read this quote this morning um, pertaining to exactly what you're saying, this river that flows, that we have to like make sure we don't become too much of a part of it. This quote is by W.H. Griffith Thomas. It's, he says this, a ship in the water. So in, his, in this analogy, the ship is the church. A ship in the water is perfectly right meaning it's, it's separate, it's floating in the water, but it's not contaminated by the water. But if that water gets into the ship, then it's perfectly wrong, and the ship is going to sink. So Christians in the world are right and necessary, but the world in the Christian is wrong and disastrous.
2: That's perfect, and we didn't plan that, I promise you. That's a great uh, illustration, Lib. And I think sometimes we can, I think it's something for us to actually discern right now. Mm. Because I think the stream of the world is, is no longer a stream, at least in the United States of America. I mean, it's, it's more than a river. It's, it's becoming a category three, four, five very quickly. Mm-hmm. And if we just continue to think that um, that's where we're supposed to be, I don't know. More and more I'm starting to just think totally. more and more that we have to be like Abraham someone who is not getting sucked in and becoming the stream and like the stream but is in a place where we can be something altogether different from the stream salt light leaven these are mm. illustrations that god uses to say this is what we are to be in the world and that that means we're to be different distinct and i think right now we need a lot of discernment about about can we be
0: distinct if we're so immersed in our world and i think the distinctiveness is what makes uh Abraham's intercession in this moment is so powerful. I have reason to believe it's the reason that Lot's saved. Yeah, we'll get there in chapter 19, but mm-hmm. verse 29 almost gives us a hint that it's because of Abraham's intercession that God... Like Abraham is almost a uh, type of Christ. Now, what's a, what's a type, Libby, in the Old Testament?
1: Uh, typology is just when you kind of take someone in the Old Testament and they represent a bigger picture of what's gonna carry through the whole text. So you kind of, typology can actually go too far, but I think when it, we're talking about biblical theology, when we're talking about seeing Jesus all over the Bible, that's one of the places where you can take it to the bank.
0: Yeah. So. And I'm not saying that Abraham is Jesus, but I'm saying there's this beautiful intercession he's where he's, he's removed, he has not been corrupted by Sodom, mm. but he's not saying to hell to hell with Sodom, He's actually saying, my heart longs to see God's grace and mercy poured out over Sodom, at least the righteous in Sodom, and therefore I'm going to try to stand in the gap between what you're planning on doing, Lord, and that city. Hmm. Yeah, I mean,
2: God could be testing Abraham right now because Abraham, listening to this conversation, could be like... (laughs) I kind of heard what you said and I'm all for it and just walk away. Yeah, he
1: could have gotten his popcorn and sat on the edge of the plane and just watched the fireworks.
2: Which is Jonah. That's what Jonah wanted with Nineveh. Okay? But actually, he does the opposite of that. Yeah. And I think God, and because he's in human form, I'll say Christ, I think he has tears coming down his face as he experiences Abraham in this text. Because Abram now has been invited in, and it's like he's standing between before the judge of the universe, because that's what God has just said, I am going to bring a judgment day upon Sodom. And Abraham now comes before the judge of the universe, approaches the bench as a defense attorney in the courtroom, to defend Sodom. And he makes his case. And at times, he's humble. This is where he says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. I have no business standing before the judge of the universe even saying what I'm saying. But then at other times, he
0: says, how dare the judge of the universe do such a thing? Yeah, he's calling God to, to account for his own character. And he's, he's making a case that's,
2: that's kind of interesting to me. We're, we're so individualistic in, in our culture, and we just think everyone is accountable to themselves. But what Abraham is actually saying is, he's, he's saying, don't just look at the individual. Would you look at the whole community? And if there are... First, he starts with 50 righteous people in this community. Will you still judge it? And this is the case that he, as the defense attorney for Sodom, is making before the judge of the universe. And God says, yeah, I'll save it. And he keeps, how about 40? I'll save it. And he keeps making the same case. 30, I'll save it. 20, yes. Lord, can I just ask one more time, how about 10? Would you save it if there are 10 righteous people? God says yes. And this is to me where it gets strange. He just walks away. It's like he's been dueling it out as this boxer in the ring with God. And it's like, all right, I tap out. And just goes home. It begs the question, why? I have some theories on on why he taps out. I don't think he wants to go any further i don't think he wants to go down to one because one would be the next logical thing that he would say how about if there's just one Mm. that means he has to hear the truth about what god is going to say about his nephew lot because lot and his family are in that city and abraham knows the answer to that question that he doesn't have a righteous one in that city yeah And the irony of Lot is he's not just in that city belonging to the city, but the text says in the first verse that he sat at the gate. And that is technical terms in the Bible for where the judges sit. This is where jurisprudence takes place in the ancient cities. It's it's in the city gate. Everything is brought to the gate of the city because that's where the judges sit. And so this is clear evidence that Lot is a judge of this city. In fact, several commentaries may even say he might be the mayor of this city. And this is where I'm also left because this is the Hebraic way of of dealing with this whole thing of what is our role in the world as God's people? Um, And they understand this. Jesus isn't the first to say we're to be in the world but not of the world. I mean, God's people are the first who have this calling of God to be a light to the nations in the world, but not of the world, proclaiming, putting Christ, putting God on display for the world to see. Yeah. So their question becomes, well, who influences who? You know, do, it, 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 Am I going into Sodom and, and am I changing Sodom, or is Sodom changing me?
0: We have to constantly make that evaluation.
2: Constantly. Who is influencing
0: who, and it's <coughs> obvious. Because um, for a lot... Lot's like, how, how close to the fire can I go before I get burned? Yes. That's his MO. He just kept
2: getting closer and closer until he's brought all the way in. Then he makes it almost to the top and he becomes Sodom. Sodom has him for lunch. So Abrams, he doesn't want the answer to answer that question. So he walks away. What about Lot? Lot's in that city.
0: So. Oh, I agree. I but, think it's evidence, though, of his faith, too. I think it's, I think Abram's going, yeah, I don't want the answer to that. But also, as much as I'm bantering back and forth at the Lord, I do trust you. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. You, you are the righteous judge. Yes. So I'm going to call you to account for what I already know about your character. But then when it comes to 10, I don't know. That's a great point. I think it's a phenomenal point. I I think think silence is his faith. Sometimes you just have to stand silent before the God of the universe and say, you have information that I don't have. You can see this in a multitude of angles that I cannot see it. I think there's such a temptation, especially in our hyper individualistic world, right? Or we stand as judge over the God of the universe. And we like to read these passages in reverse and then make a judgment about God's character. But I think Abraham knows deep down inside who God is. He's already revealed his character to him so many times that I think by the time he gets to 10, again, just But listen to what you just said, that we make judgments about
2: God's character. In other words, who's the judge? Exactly. Then we put ourselves in that place of being the judge and it's like the C.S. Lewis talked about this. God is in the dock, and dock is a British term exactly. for the person who's being judged um, in in a court. And it's like that gets so backwards.
0: Like God becomes, we put God in that place. Yeah, we put him in the petri dish and we start dissecting him.
1: Well, and I love his response to Job when Job does that. He's like, "Were you <laughs> were you there when I flung the stars into the skies? Um, were you there when I told the ocean?" this far and no farther yes it's a proper understanding of who god is and who we are but it's hard like this side of eternity when like we don't just trust what we see the limited information like you said traig god has so much so much more information than we have and he's true and he's good and he's faithful and he's just and i think maybe maybe even abraham thought if there aren't ten then maybe it should be judged if there are at least ten what's lot yeah. been doing you know so if it's cuz i think sometimes that can happen to us too in the american church it's almost like the frog in the kettle like if we're too close to the world and we just don't even notice anymore and maybe that's where lot was like you're there for so long that you're you've just become so compromising
0: yeah oh that's such a great thought lib the other thing that i was going to bring up though is that lot isn't righteous the New Testament says he's righteous, but this is where again we get this thing all jacked up. Righteousness does not have to do with our own like we can't merit our own righteousness. The, Lot is obviously not a righteous man, neither is Abram, but they're imputed righteousness because of their faith. And so what I think is going on here because the New Testament calls Lot righteous uh, in 2nd Peter, is it second or first? 2nd Peter. Um But I think that there's, I think he's a deeply conflicted man. I think that Lot has, you know, and we'll see in 19, he shows the, the two angels the same type of hospitality, albeit less generous to them that his uncle Abraham does. I think there's a piece of him that really thinks that he probably could have lived in Sodom and influenced it for the better. And this goes back to what you were talking about, Rod. Like We have to have an honest evaluation of where we're at and what places we're putting ourselves in. Sometimes it's safe to go in, but other times you gotta look at it, and if it's a category four, uh, rapid, that we're like, I can't touch that without being taken down the river. Well, guess who gets, It. guess
2: what? It costs a lot. It costs him his wife. He loses his wife, his daughters. All of his wealth all of his wealth. I mean, yeah. So he's spared, but at a great cost.
1: Well, and I think we have to look at the heart. Like We're also given a window into Lot's motivation of why he's in Sodom. So the text tells us earlier that it looked like Egypt, and he's just come out of Egypt with Abraham when Abraham makes that terrible error with his wife. And so he's gotten used to the good life, the easy life, the life where there's a city, where there's running water. It's not the plains where you're just trying to survive a nomadic lifestyle like his uncle Abraham is doing. So his motivation to go into Sodom is to have wealth and have ease. Yep. We don't ever have a sense from the text that he's going in as a missionary. Like, I really want to change Sodom. Lord, come with me, help me. Like The only insight we get is that um, he's looking for... Egypt yeah that's insight we get but we hear in the New Testament when Jesus says he says woe to you to these three cities around the Sea of Galilee Capernaum Chorazin and Bethsaida and he says if the miracles were done Sodom could have been saved
2: yeah he said so, if the miracles had not been done miracles that have been done here had been done in Sodom Sodom would have repented, in would dust have repented. and ashes.
0: which shows how arrogant those three cities were
1: well I'm just saying Sodom could have been saved so, yeah. Jesus is alluding to that. But I don't think there was a presence in the same way that we're thinking of how do we exist in the world and not be of the world. I'm not sure Lot had that mindset.
0: No, that's a no, great. No, yeah, point. That, that is a great point. Yeah, and there's actually a motif being built right now in Genesis by the time we get to this chapter that is, I want to talk about the city versus mm. uh, out in the plains motif. The city at this point in the biblical narrative is not a good place. God's going to redeem that. We know if if we look at all of uh, the Bible that ultimately the new Jerusalem is a city, but God is at the center. But there's this motif being set up, you know, with Babel, city of Cain, Babel. Now you have have Sodom and Gomorrah, that that is the place, like you said, Libby, where you go to be self-sufficient where we as human beings can come together collectively and provide whatever we need. Whereas Abram being a nomad out in, in the fields would have had to follow the seasons and the weather patterns uh, and really had to trust God for his daily provision. And so there's kind of that motif being set up here too, where Lot's like, I don't want that life. I want city life.
1: Okay, I'm going to read the text that I quote because I misquoted it, didn't feel right in my spirit, but I want to read the right text. <laughs> uh, Matthew eleven twenty three says, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No. He actually says, you will go down to Hades. And Capernaum is Jesus' hometown in Galilee. And then Jesus says this, For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would remain to this day.
2: That's a fascinating thought. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that God's opposed to cities. In fact, no city is going to be one of God's vehicles for redemption in the world, exactly. And he's gonna call his people to be a city on a hill, set on a hill. And in the ancient world too, city was seen as kind of a form of salvation because that's where you were safe, that's where you were protected. Uh, All the disease, the warfare, the famine, that all happened outside the city. The food, the water, the rich, they all lived in the city. And so people looked to the city as, as a form of their salvation. But in that, you know, people got their eyes off God and it became about Babel. This is a place where I go and make a name for myself. But in that, God did not give up on the city. He just said, I need to raise up my city and and put my city, my people my church, the city of God, in in the babbles of the world to redeem and to restore them. So exactly. that is
0: part of the mission. Mm. God's redeeming all things. Yes. And it's starting, the seeds are getting dropped right here. Yeah,
1: And it's like you're supposed to be a different kind of city in direct juxtaposition to what Sodom is. You should be the alternative. Like when um, Dr. Sitzer, we had that podcast, and he talked about those two plays that are going on at the same time. There's two like realities, and we're actors in the plays, and which which stage are you going to be on? And so when God says, you're a city on a hill, it's like there, there are cities of the world. And he's actually, when Jesus says that, he's actually thinking of a very pagan city and asking the disciples to be a different kind of a city, um, to be a part of this third way, or to be the part of a new invisible kingdom that's breaking forth when he's there.
2: So, And that's even in our text today. Yeah. Because Jewish people to this day, because of this text, and Jesus was a Jew, um, the reason, because Abram stopped at 10 and didn't go any further, 10 in the Hebrew mind is a minyan. A minyan is the minimum number for a synagogue.
0: Number of people that have to be there.
2: Yes, number of men. Yeah, number of men. There have to be ten men. Uh, That's called a minyan, and that is now. Now we have a synagogue. Synagogue is not a building. It came from this text. It came from this text. And where does where does God want a minyan? In Sodom, but there isn't one. And because there's no minyan, God's people in that place righteous god's judgment comes down now that's how that's that's how jewish people understand this text i don't think we have to fully agree on the specifics but jesus is still living off of this when he says to his disciples you are to be a city set on a hill and a light to the nations like i think he's still saying he just changes the number (laughs) where two or three are gathered there i am with you so I need at least two or three. Notice it's not one. Yeah. This but gets to I our think, mission.
1: I think we should get back to um, what you were saying about Lot priesting because...
2: You mean Abraham. Yeah, sorry.
1: Yes. Abram priesting because he's definitely a type of Christ. He's definitely standing in a gap. He's definitely appealing to God. But it's because of that that Lot is then rescued, but he still destroys the city. Correct. So talk about priesting. Talk about what it, what's the actual role of a priest in the world. How does that apply to us? What are we supposed to do? What does that mean? Because a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about what a priest is. So when we typically in our Protestant Christian um, vocabulary don't really talk about priests, like we have pastors, Catholics have priests. Um, Episcopalians, Anglicans, priests. But what does that mean? Like practically, what are we supposed to Even in those
2: senses, a a priest is a go-between. And that goes all the way back to the ancient world. In the ancient world, because people could not see God, God was unseeable. Um, It was the priest's job to represent the God and to put that God on display to the worshiper. It also worked the other way. The priest was the goal between from the worshiper to God. The priest was to represent the worshiper to God. And see, they had a very different understanding of God, I think, than we do sometimes. We get so flippant with God and we just think we can waltz in his courts, in his presence any way we want. But in the ancient world, God was unapproachable. And therefore, a worshiper needed a priest, someone that would clean them up and prepare them so that they could now enter into the presence of this holy God. And so this the priest in the ancient world is a go-between. Someone who stands in the gap between God and the worshiper, putting the God on display for the worshiper to see and making the worshiper uh, clean uh, so that they can approach a holy God. Mm. And that's exactly what Abraham is doing on behalf of Sodom yeah. and Gomorrah. He's standing as a go-between between Sodom and God mm. as the advocate. And he's just like he's going to bat for Sodom. Yeah. And so a priest is someone who who does that as a go-between. And to think that God in both the Old Testament and New Testament calls his people a nation of priests or a royal priesthood, same term. Like we're all priests. We're, that is our, our role in the world. We are to be a go-between.
1: So many takeaways from that. If we think about our place where we are, the people that are in our lives, the work that we do, the communities that we affect, if we could just embody and take on that mantle of part of my job, my, com- my commissioning from God is to represent him to these people, to put him on display, to look exactly like yeah. him. Yeah. And then the flip side, I love that Brian Medallia said in our staff meeting last week, he said, yeah. um, every week I pray for each one of the staff people. So on the flip side, he's, He's representing us as a staff to God. So our role can be to represent God to everyone and on the flip side, to take everyone that we know and love <clears throat> and represent them to God and bring them before God and leave them at his, have the privilege of leaving at his feet, the people that we yeah. love and the people that we care for.
2: I mean, listen to this text. This is for Ezekiel 22. Beautiful. I looked for someone among them would stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it but I found no one so I'll pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger God's just saying like because his he's holy mm. he he wants to make a world gone bad right again that's why he pours out his justice and he's like I was just looking for just one person who would stand before me in the gap, but I found no one. Therefore, I had no choice. Oh, that God would not have to say that today—that He can... would have thousands upon hmm. thousands
0: of priests all over His globe standing in the gap. And obviously, we're not going to get that. We're we're sinful, so we're not going to look perfectly like God, but I think it does start with submitting to what God is actually like. And I just see a, a big trend in church world today of we got a lot of lot in us trying to dance. We want the world we want our cake and eat it too. We want to be like God, but we also wanna dip our toes in Sodom. And um yeah, I think that you immediately forfeit looking like a priest when you try to dance with the world. Amen. It's that both and. Whereas Abraham is almost this perfect picture, not perfect as we would think of perfect, but a good picture of what that priesting should look like, which is pleading with God for Sodom, but not consumed by it. And
2: not only are we sometimes so immersed in the world, but yet we also then also complain about the world. We judge the world. And that's not what Abraham's doing. He's not coming to God and like, oh, no, just, God, just get rid of this. This is just a cancer to our whole world. you got to get rid of this. Um, he's not complaining about it. He's not a critic of it. He just stands in the gap and just says, God, would you spare it?
0: But he won't touch it. Yeah, and he's not approved for that either. And I think you'll be, if you if you put up healthy biblical boundaries around things that are becoming more normative in our culture, people are going to look at you like a freak. And I think that's, that's okay. True. Yeah. And I just can't though believe how much how many people are complaining about everything
2: today we're complaining about our cities, we're complaining about our schools, we're complaining about our neighborhoods, we're complaining about our politicians, we're complaining about our culture and I don't know. I don't see any call in the Bible for Christians
0: to be about that. We're not called to complain. We're called to priest. So how do you, how do you see those two things in contrast? I agree with you, but
2: well, I think it's one is the response of selfishness and the other complaining is, is, is a is a selfish response. Priesting is a selfless response. It's it's not about me. It's I care about my neighbor. I care about my school. I care about the nations. You know, and that's why prayer is important. And that's how I think we are to be in the world and out of the world. And I think where our world is in hurt and pain and there we are to be God's people in prayer, priesting, praying, not complaining, not criticizing, but this people that are just devoted to standing in the gap. Oh, God. Yeah. And I still think this argument that Abram is making to God is a very unique one. God, will you spare the many because of the righteous few? Again, it points forward. I know it does because you're left almost begging, God, what about one? If there's just a righteous one, will you spare the many? And to me, that, that's the, the whole biblical story is that God does spare the many because of the righteous one and that righteous one is not lot that righteous one isn't even abraham but it's christ and god does because of christ
0: spare the many which includes all of us first well, peter, spared yeah first peter 318 for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to god He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous. Paul says in Romans 3, as he's bringing together an amalgamation of the Psalms, there is no one righteous, not even one. So that's where I go, going back to lot, like obviously Noah's proclaimed righteous, Abram's proclaimed righteous, but it's not because of their own merit. Correct. It's because of the grace and mercy of God. Anyway, we have a righteous one. Exactly, we do have a righteous who one, who is the great high priest, who came to the world to
2: stand in the gap. And then, when you look at how he st- stood in the gap, he absorbed into himself all of the all of our unrighteousness, and then exchanged it for his righteousness. It's beyond. It's too good to be true, but it is.
1: And it's because he did that for us that we should then be motivated to priest on behalf of others. Like when we see that he did that for us, that that place at the foot of the cross is equal equal ground. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. How many times you've failed. When we all stand at the foot of the cross, we're all the same, and God was the righteous for all of us. So we would be so selfish to not then. Do that on behalf of other people. To, like you said, Rod, take a complaining posture or take a, like a superior posture or any of those kind of terrible postures that Jesus never took. Jesus was full of hope. Jesus was whole, full of good news. Jesus definitely spoke truth and confronted sin, but always with the hope mixed in that you can come to me and you can change and you can repent you can get back on the path. And Jesus hung out with sinners all the time. Jesus dipped his toe in Sodom all the time. But his his toe being dipped in Sodom was with a message of come home.
0: Yeah, go and sin no more. I know.
2: So just imagine, get, put yourself in the shoes of Christ right now. And here's this man, Abram, who you've chosen. And he's not doing something that he, he's not doing it because he has to do it. God never even instructed him to do what he's doing. It's in Abram's heart to go toe-to-toe with God and to priest on behalf of Sodom. This is why I think Christ, as he's watching this man, has tears coming down his, eye, his cheeks. Like, this is my heart. This man has my heart.
0: So this is where I said it's beautiful type of Christ because Jesus lives to intercede for us. For those that have been bought with his blood, he lives to intercede for us. So if verse 29 in chapter 19 is correct and there's this hint that it's because of Abram's pleading with God that Lot is saved, think about our righteous, pure, perfect high priest in Jesus who even when we just jack it up every day, he stands there before the Father, and he says, look at my righteousness. Amen. And he's doing it not because he has to. But because he wants to. It's his heart. And that's where it's beautiful to me, because Abraham's not perfect, and he's doing this. But Jesus is. I know. And he's doing it. And he's actually... But okay, I want to go back to some of our favorite verses, because you're ta- we're talking about this interplay be- between being priests, and then how to now live that out. So right after we get 1 Peter two nine, right? You are... A chosen people royal priesthood a holy nation god's special possession then in verse 11 it says dear friends i urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul but live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may actually see your good deeds and glorify god on the day he visits us that's perfect so there's your instruction right after he says, this is your identity. Mm-hmm. You're actually a royal priesthood. Then he says, this is how you're to live. Live among but the packings. let's add Panikins.
1: that the other part yeah. of the identity that you, you read most of it, but then because you are a people who've been called well, out, out of, of darkness, darkness. So we ourselves have been called out of Sodom-like darkness and brought into his marvelous light. So it's because of what he's done for us that then he gives us instruction to understand. as soon as we understand who we are in him it's like then we can move forward and be motivated in our heart of hearts not just out of performance or out of wanting to check boxes or do the right thing but we can move forward into what the next verses say trig which are live go ahead read it again live such
0: live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify god in the day visits us i want to add one more thing though This is verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Because that's the other thing now I'm seeing. So there's, look at, like, Peter's just putting these nice little guardrails on this thing because then I'm starting to see the license that people feel that they now have in Christ start to draw them back into Sodom-like behavior. Well, that's why he says first,
2: abstain. Exactly. Abstain from darkness so you can live in darkness. Yes. And you can't live in darkness if you're not abstaining from it. And this is where the church needs to hear this word. We we have to abstain from darkness while we live in darkness. And... Abstaining means we don't accept everything. Abstaining means we can say, this is God's way and this isn't. Mm. Whether it's marriage, sexuality, gender. And why do I mention these things? Because our, these are the big things in our culture right now that are are trying to tear down God's way. and And for us now, these are the things that we have to live into with conviction and distinctiveness. Uh, I don't want Jesus saying to me, you're, you're salt, but you have
0: no saltiness. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's all, all of that is wrapped up in wanting to somehow fear God, but also fear man at the same time. Somehow yeah. be a friend of God, but also be a friend of the world. And it's not to single out a, cert, a one particular set of sins, but I think the reason that you bring up that whole category of sin right now is it's the only wholesale category that the church, and I say church at large, seems to be tempted to say is not sin. It's not that that sin is any worse than any other sin, but all sin leads to death, and therefore encouraging anyone to live in any type of sin is death. Yeah, and I
2: I think I mentioned this probably in the last podcast, but Elon Musk tweeted the war on children, this two hour video, and I watched it. And it was shocking what the war that's happening on our children. Yesterday, I was coming home flying on an airplane, sitting next to a guy. I think he saw what I was doing on my computer because I was doing sermon prep. And when we landed, he said, "Are you a Christian?" I saw what you're doing. Are you? What are you doing? I said, "I'm preparing a sermon." He said, "I'm a Christian," and he lives in Virginia. To make a long story short, his wife is uh, a teacher, teaches sixth grade in the school system, and he was just talking about how she just can't believe what she's seen in sixth graders today. How it's so popular to not even just switch from one gender to the other, but to actually have all the surgeries done and everything. And it's like they're the most popular kids in the class and it's becoming an, an epidemic. It's time for the church to be different because our mission actually is our distinctiveness. And the moment we lose our distinctiveness, we have nothing to offer
0: yeah. the world. And I will say, uh, I meet with a group of pastors once a month Um, and they're not, they're in another denomination. Um, and several of them are struggling with these conversations within their church. Um, and they both, you know, said to me recently, the more we have these conversations as if this is something that is up for debate, the less and less mission I'm seeing our church live into. I've seen it. My, the church I was raised in the Christian
2: reform church, it, it's in such a heated battle, yeah. Just, and it's stuck inside itself because they're fighting each other. And the war isn't supposed to be inside. Jesus himself said a house divided cannot stand. So when you have those internal conflicts, that's exactly what the enemy wants because now we can't live missionally. We, we can't be on
0: mission. Or you can you even define the mission? Because the moment that you can't, say that something that is clearly stated in scripture all over the old and new testament is sin the the moment you can't say that how can you stand on any type of authority when you preach god's word every sunday on any issue now you just become a group of people that pick and choose and are not willing to let your preferred version of jesus be challenged by what scripture says which is why i just love that we are a church that takes seriously the word and goes through books and forces ourselves to digest material that we probably otherwise wouldn't want to digest or be confronted with. We're about to get yeah. to one. Or a huge bed. shout out to Daryl. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's I love this guy. And
2: his style might be a little bit different. The man loves the word of God. He does. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't just love it, but it's like you can feel that the Bible is authoritative to him Mm -hmm. and it's weighty to him and he's up there knowing that he has to steward it. And yeah. So when I hear some of these stories that you just talked about with your friends and just see what's going on in other churches, I'm grateful for Crossroads. I'm really grateful for where we are and places, there's probably still places where we need to bring more clarity uh, to to things.
0: But we can say one thing that God does not, the gospel is not, not that God accepts you as you are. He loves you too much for that. He wants you to turn, repent, and flee from your sin into his loving arms. And then he wants to transform you. He wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. And he wants to redeem your story. Amen. Not just save you from your sin, but actually now take that, redeem it, and use it for his purposes.
2: I think it's interesting what you read, Leb Jesus' words. You know, if those three cities, these religious cities in Jesus' day, Capernaum, Quartz, and Bethsaida, uh, I mean, just fervent religion. Synagogues on every corner. And yet, Jesus says, if, if the miracles that had done in Sodom would have been performed, the miracles here were performed in Sodom, they would have repented a long time ago. Think about how he's highlighting repentance and the importance of it. And repentance is just this wonderful gift it that is. we can turn from Sodom. We don't have to be ensnared in Sodom. We don't have to become Sodom. And when we, when we do, we can turn from it and repent. And We have the arms of God just waiting for us. So and he doesn't want to just accept us. He wants to bring us into his arms and kiss us and that kiss changes us and redeems us and heals us and restores us so we can now live as part of his family and making
0: his name great and walking the path that he wants us to walk yeah and that's where i think frozen chosen theology gets dicey is like if you just say that this idea of salvation requires nothing of you then there's no repentance I don't know if that makes sense.
2: You're trying to talk about my tradition now. Again, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just
0: saying like Jesus's first words in his preaching ministry and repent in in Matthew's Turned. gospel. Exactly, like come back. Hey, but the, there's still something for us to do. And the, the father in the story of the prodigal isn't running to the pig trough to grab his son, even though he's made his way near his yeah. home again. He's waiting for him to run back. But when he does, hey. The fattened calf is here. We've been waiting for you. There's a party in heaven going on. All that I have is yours. But to think that that doesn't require that we actually live and seek out God's purposes for our life. It's foolishness. I would
2: say these are some of the most exciting days Mm. for the church in the United States of America. I agree. Because of where things are right now. And yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of persecution. There's going to be a lot of suffering as we live into the distinctiveness that God has for us. We are going to be different. We're going to stand out. And it's going to be offensive. But um, if we can be priests, because Abram's not just doing what he has to do. He loves the city. He loves the people of the city. God loves the city. God loves the people of the city. That's why he's praying and pleading with God, spare them. And that's why God becomes a priest, the priest to end all priests. And did what he did on a
0: cross to spare us. Amen. And that's where I love where <laughs> Daryl went and on Sunday. I mean, he did a little bit more systematics than we usually do at Crossroads. But I cross it. It was great. But yeah, but this actually allows us to see this for what it is. God is immutable or unchanging, mm. as Daryl told us. Yep. And that means that he's not just on a whim going like, I hate their behavior and therefore I'm gonna go down and judge them. Or no. some
2: roller coaster. Exactly. Just, or he some has bipolar to. God.
0: He know. has to, to be just.
2: He, he loves this to. world. He
0: loves this world, but he yeah. has to judge. And uh, yeah, he's not gonna let the, the the oppressed stand oppressed forever. And that's another thing. God is patient until he isn't. God is patient until the day comes. Yeah. And Jesus warns about this, and we'll get into this probably next podcast, but there is a judgment day, whether we want to, whether we like that reality or not.
1: And that's why it's important for us to stay busy, to get busy, stay busy or get busy, whatever applies, because like you're saying, God isn't patient forever, and he's left us as the light of the world and the salt of the earth, and so he's we have a certain amount of time here where we can actually priest and impact people and bring help to bring people home as we represent him. So there's a sense of urgency. I mean, this is not just something where we sit back and just hang out and please ourselves and do whatever's fun and comfortable. We, we need to be on mission for the people that are around us, the people that God has placed around us that he loves so much. And the women's Bible study, we're uh, studying the Sermon on the Mount and so um, I was doing some research on the salt part. You are the salt of the earth, and I I read that in the Old Testament. We've talked about covenants, right? Because Abraham and God did this covenant where they walked through the pieces and walked through the blood. And then in the old in the ancient world, when a covenant is made, salt is thrown on it. And oh, salt, that's interesting. So they have a
2: covenant of salt.
1: Yeah, they have a covenant of salt. And salt is also a preserver um, in the ancient world when they had like meats and stuff. They would put salt on it and it would last longer. And so this person that I was reading was saying that salt, the salt covenant, salt preserver, is that when he's saying you are the salt of the earth, you actually are the preservation of the covenant on the earth. You walking the earth is the sign that the covenant is still being preserved. And if you lose that, if you're not distinct and you're not salty anymore, then there's no sign of the covenant on the earth. No
0: hope, that's so Like we have
1: a role to play. Like it's important that we know that when we wake up in the morning every day that that we have a role to play. That God, he talked about God changing his mind, but it says that um, even in that Ezekiel passage that you read that the opposite could be true. If he had found someone that was standing in the gap, he would not have poured out his wrath. So, and we have a role to play, and we need to take that seriously, and be on mission, bringing the lost home.
2: So good, Lib. I this brings to mind when we were living in Israel. One day, I was just exploring, and I ran into this mini little Holocaust museum, and I'm in there, and all of a sudden, when these Orthodox Jews, and I walk out at the same time. Orthodox Jews are these guys with the long side curls and the hat and the black clothes and usually they avoid a gentile like me but he started talking to me i think there was things to talk about we just came out of a holocaust museum and and i just he he asked me what i thought i asked him what he thought his answer was stunning to me he said that holocaust happened and the jewish people deserved it now this is him talking because we were not a light to the nations. And the sins of the world are our fault. Now listen, that might be bad theology, but that's how far some Jewish people take their responsibility in the world, for the world. That if, if the world has gone bad, that is because we have not been a light a kingdom of priests, uh, shining the light of God into the world. So I, I found that to be fascinating. I wish Christians had a little more of that. I mean, I think the Holocaust is one of the most horrific things in human history. I think it's diabolical. I think it was any kind of Holocaust is diabolical. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to rob, kill, and destroy. I'm just quoting what a Jewish person, his interpretation of that was, and it was a wow for me. Yeah. I'm not saying I agreed with him. I was just going to say, what did he ask you? Oh, well, he asked me like, what are your thoughts on this? Er, excuse, and excuse and that's why he gave his answer, but he was chastising me. I'm, I'm so, so I meant the other way. What did you ask him? Well, I asked him what he th- no, thought No, that of. was his oh, answer. That was answer. his answer. Yeah. Yes. That was his answer. That was not my answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Uh, so let's make that abundantly clear. <laughs> um, but I think <laughs> he gave his answer because he was frustrated with my answer. Um my answer was, you know, what I just said. This, this diabolical. Like, no, it's th- awful. And I, his answer shocked me in light of the answer that I gave him, which I thought would actually, I didn't say it to please him, but I thought it would be one that would, you know, be one that
0: he, he would be. Yeah, thank you for thinking that. It's so good. It's so good because I think that a lot of times Christians, especially today, we feel hamstrung. Like there's absolutely no way. That we could make an influence on this sodom- like culture it's just not true um, I think we can and not that it's about winning the culture war because it's not I think it's about personal holiness and then as a community coming together and becoming all that we're called to be uh, in Christ and
2: yeah and they don't they don't have the New Testament or they don't believe the New Testament but their mission is to Olam. To partner with God to repair the whole world. And because God is partnering with them, if the world is not being repaired because they are Americanized or sodomized or Babylonized or, you know what I mean? Getting too immersed in the world. I mean, he was very critical of his people. So. There's a
1: place for us to start by criticizing ourselves and criticizing the church. Like when you were talking about earlier about we complain about the world, we should actually first start with ourselves and the church, capital C, and start there. Like where are we messing up? Where are we not standing in the gap? Where are we not effectively priesting? Meaning are we not representing God and Christ in all that he is, in his fullness? Because there is, if we don't, we are the salt the earth and if we lose our saltiness the covenant has no evidence and so there's nothing attractive about us
2: And this goes all the way back to Abram and then of course we see it in Jacob like we are called not for privilege we're called be- for responsibility and the Jewish people understand that that we have a huge responsibility in the world and thats that's why I mean the prophets, the worst judgment, that they always spell out is for God's people, not the world, because of the partnership that they have with God and what they're supposed to be in the world for the world you know better you know that, better exactly you have my grace and you have my mm-hmm. you have my grace you have, you have my, my presence. word. you have my presence, my path exactly,
0: my word all exactly, of it. so there's a warning there for and probably he t- took it t- t-ing too far. teeing up something though but, for for sunday but it's worth repeating you'll hear this on sunday probably i don't know but first corinthians 5 paul is talking about judgment um and he says don't you know that god is going to judge the the world that's not your concern um and he says "I, i i'm telling you not to associate with sexually immoral people swindlers idolaters all these things but he says not the people of this world otherwise you'd have to leave this very planet right but he says, as far as those that are brothers and sisters in Christ are concerned, I want you to judge those people. In other words, we are to make moral judgments about our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you claim the name of Christ, it is my duty as your brother or sister to say, hey, you're going down the wrong path. You're losing your saltiness. You're not distinctive anymore. You're not living the path of God. You're not walking it out. Um, and we there's should this do that for each other. half lie mm-hmm that there's this half truth that that the enemy has swindled into the church that is like only god can judge it's like yes only god can judge our ultimate salvation but we are to call one another out and help each other walk god's path this whole idea that we just have to sit back passively and allow all behavior is ridiculous it's not biblical amen amen i agree libby can you pray for us yeah
1: God, we just come before you even right now around this table in this specific place in this specific time, God, um, remembering that you are a great high priest and that you are so good, you're so kind, you're filled with loving kindness, God, and you're so merciful and so patient with us, God. And we just pray that you would strengthen us, that you would comfort us, that you would keep us um, as we attempt, God, to remain salty. In a world that um is increasingly turning up the temperature god we pray that you would show us your path that you would cause our hearts to seek your path that you would illuminate our minds god to know you to recognize you to recognize what's not you um, and that lord you would just give us divine appointments where we can priest on behalf of the people that you love god and then also give us the strength and the clarity to look a lot like you pray all these things in jesus name amen
0: amen amen this is the locker room where we break down sermons, stories and scripture for the race of our faith if this podcast has been serving you hit follow and the notification bell that way you can stay up to date on all new episodes we love you have a great week
1: Go, priest